Hey folks, and welcome back to the show. Before we get going with the episode, I want to put a bow on 2022 with one more year-end list. I did my top 10 albums a while back, and today I want to present the three worst episodes of the Raised by Whoops fake radio show from the past year. Everybody talks about their best of lists, but I feel like the low quality stuff doesn't get talked about enough. Coming in at number three, and written by yours truly, is The Peacock, a story about a waitress at my high school lunch hangout. It makes the list because if we're being serious, who gives a shit about a waitress from my high school days 25 years ago? No offense to her, but it's not the most compelling story. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. The number two spot goes to Parking Lot Euthanasia, also written by me. This episode makes it on because there are certain aspects of one's life that should be kept under wraps. In this case, it's the year and a half that I spent driving people's deceased pets around in a sprinter van destined for the crematorium. No one forced me to divulge that information, and yet for some reason, I offered it up voluntarily on a public platform. Genius move on my part. Finally, the number one worst episode of the RBW fake radio program from the year of our Lord 2022 goes to the repugnant reign of Penny Pinching Pete. You guessed it, also written by me. The rationale for the inclusion of this one follows the same logic as the euthanasia episode. I didn't have to expose my father as a conspiracy-inclined doomsday prepper, but I did anyway, thereby embarrassing myself and my family in the process. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, count yourself lucky, and whatever you do, don't go back and listen to those episodes. And now moving on to an episode of much higher quality. Today's program is the first interview I've done for the show. Orlando, Florida-based educator and podcaster Jason Earle was kind enough to join me over Zoom recently for a really fun conversation. As mentioned, Jason is a teacher by trade, but has been immersed in the music journalism world for years through podcasting and reviewing live shows, where he's championed numerous up-and-coming acts as well as more established ones. He's also a writer of songs and fictional prose in his own right. You can find his work at marinadepodcast.com or simply by searching The Marinade with Jason Earl. He's interviewed and discussed the creative process with hundreds of artists, including Todd Snyder, Allison Russell, Lucero's Ben Nichols, Kelsey Walden, Will Johnson, Willie Vlotten, Kristen Arnett, and many, many others. On top of all his great work, Jason is also a really kind soul, and I'm grateful to have had the chance to ask him a few questions about his background and his creative endeavors. I'm going to play us in with a song called No Airplane by Orlando resident Patrick Hagerman. Jason mentions Patrick and his songwriting during the interview, so I thought it'd be appropriate to start things off with this beautifully crafted song. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. One, two...
wish this truck it was an airplane I could run this route in two days And I wouldn't be so lonesome With a co-pilot beside me I could tell them all about you Wouldn't feel so bad without you As it is I'm going insane This truck it ain't no airplane Maybe I should take a pay cut Put an offer on a box truck Find a city route and slow down Never have to leave our hometown But there's money on the highway And there's plenty coming my way If I can keep it in the fast lane This truck, it ain't no airplane If I came home every night Would it make up for the loss? Could I make the sacrifice? Nail my comfort to the cross I wish this letter was an airplane It would never land on your grave Follow flowers to your fingertips Find you wearing that old twice-worn slip That you once wore to please me Even though you were uneasy till you heard the passing freight train this truck it ain't no airplane I wish this truck it was an airplane I could run this route in two days and I wouldn't be so lonesome With a co-pilot beside me I could tell them all about you Wouldn't feel so bad without you As it is I'm going insane This truck it ain't no airplane All alone and going insane And this truck it ain't no airplane
So thanks for doing this, Jason, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, yeah, man. I do want to get into your background and uh, and a bit more about who you are. But uh, but before we do that, um, I want to start with something else. A friend of mine who uh, who's done a lot of interviews uh, gave me some advice upon hearing that I was going to be talking to you. Told me that the uh, the most important thing when interviewing is to make your guest feel uh, relaxed. So um, so because I'm stubborn and uh, don't listen to good advice, I thought I'd begin by uh, making you really uncomfortable uh, by complimenting some of your recent work on the marinade. So um, I I just wanted to mention a couple a couple episodes that I listened to recently. Uh, The marinade, of course, is uh, is your interview podcast uh, that you do with musicians, authors, comedians, but heavy on heavy on the music. so yeah, uh, your episode uh, recently with Garrett T. Caps. So Garrett, uh, for the listeners, is a singer-songwriter uh, out of San Antonio, and uh, he has a uh, a music venue down there too. I think called the Lonesome Rose that I'd like to go to someday. But uh, I I first heard of Garrett through Jerry DeSica. I think Jerry's another San Antonio guy um, that I admire and and love his work a lot. And but I never did a deep dive uh, into Garrett's stuff. Until I saw his name pop up on the marinade recently and I listened and found out about his fantastic new album, uh, People Are Beautiful. And so I just first off just wanted to say thanks for that episode. I thought it was a great talk. And uh, and I ended up listening to that record. I didn't even know it existed, but I ended up listening to it and it became, quickly became one of my favorites of the year, if not my favorite of the year. That's so, awesome. yeah, man. So a quick thanks for that. And then I also, I know you've been getting good feedback on the Hayes Carl episode. Mm. I saw your social media. I saw you post something about getting good feedback. And I just wanted to add to that. I really love that song. Help me remember. It is such a powerful song. I don't have family members with dementia, but I just, I don't know that, that song, I've played that song so much and I just can't, I can't get enough of it. I just keep playing it. And I loved Hayes's uh, description of the writing process for that. And he kind of talked about like, he knew he had something good and he worked his ass off on it. Cause he knew he had something and he just kept, kept at it. And that was really insightful to me I, I, because, you know, I try songwriting. I want to put try and emphasis. I, I do try to, uh, to write songs, but a lot of times I'll get a verse or I'll get a verse in a course and I'll think this is pretty good, but then my work ethic fades and I kind of let the song just disappear and I won't keep at it. So hearing Hayes talk about like working that song until it was done was just, Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was really, uh, it was really awesome to hear that. And, uh, and then you, you guys also touched on panic attacks and uh, Mm -hmm. I've struggled with them as well. I've struggled with panic attacks in my life too. And anytime two grown men can, you know, talk about mental health stuff, I don't know. I just feel a bit better about the world when I hear stuff like that. Mm. There's too many people that keep that shit inside. And uh, it's just comforting to uh, to hear two grown men talk about that. So so I wanted to say that. Awesome. That being said, I think there's three things that you do really well on the marinade. And 
I, I am getting to a, a point here. I know I've, <laughs> I know I've went on and on, but um, Glenn, you, know, you can think, you can heap praise on my show all you want. <laughs> I, I, we can just make this you saying nice things yeah. if you want. <laughs> well, I just I kind of want to give some context to the show, and I want listeners to check your show out. So I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, man. Um, I think you're you do three things really well over at the Marinade. You help people discover new music, which mm. you know I've heard of a lot of great new bands through you. You talk about you really go into the weeds about songwriting and the creative process. Which I, which I just talked about with that Hayes example, which, uh, I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I love hearing about that stuff. And I think it gives people obviously a lot of, uh, encouragement and yeah, man, discussing mental health. Uh, I think that's, uh, critical as well. Um, in particularly in, uh, in the climate we find ourselves in today. So, um, and I mean, I listen to the show for your insight too, you know, like I think that's what's good. Like I, it, that's what keeps people coming back to a show. I mean, there's shows that I listen to for the guest only because I don't really care for the interviewer, but for the marinade, I appreciate your insight and I appreciate the guests, uh, insight wow. equally. So that's, uh, so I just wanted to start there. You don't have to, you know, I, I know it's a lot of gushing, but I just wanted to start. Well, there. thank you. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Glenn. I mean, that, so we're doing something right. Those are all the goals of the show. Those are the things that I'm trying to do, right? I want to talk about the process. I want to talk about life. I want to get into what makes people tick and what causes them to create. I want to talk about those hard things like mental health. Um, for so much of my life, I didn't talk about that stuff. And I grew up in an environment where we, we didn't talk about those things, not necessarily because the people around me weren't willing, but because we didn't have the language for it and it wasn't accepted and it wasn't mainstream. And any, any time I can have an opportunity to shine a light on those things that, that I've struggled with and and hopefully to help other people. Um, I, I'm really grateful to have whatever platform I have to be able to do that. And, and then that, you know, the fact that you, I mean, Garrett's people are beautiful has meant so much to me and it's a relatively new record. Ended up making your top 10. I listened to that episode, you know, made, ended up making your top 10 of the year, yeah. which is exactly why I do the marinade. That's, that's it, you know? And, and you mentioned Jerry David DeSica. Um, I mean, Jerry has been so, I, there is no Joe Pug episode without Jerry David DeSica. Like he introduced me to Pug. Um, yeah. you know, there, there, there is no, uh, probably is no Garrett Caps episode without Jerry David DeSica. Like the connections that I've made with those folks who, um, really want to help support each other and support the work that I'm doing. Um, we're doing something right if, uh, if we're doing what you just described. So thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for all those kind words. Yeah, man. Yeah. There's a ton of value in it. And, uh, I think people need to be reminded of the work they do sometimes. I mean, so, so many people are out there working their ass off and probably think like, what am I doing this for? Or there's a lot of nights where it's like, man, like, I don't, you know, I'm a little nervous about this interview or why do I even do this? Or, you yeah. know, maybe I should just like work my day job and just be, just exist. But I do mm-hmm. think there's value in it. So a uh, big time. So uh, I yeah. Agree. Yeah, I agree. So I'm always interested uh, in where people are from. Uh, I'm a bit of a geography nerd, and uh, nice. I don't know. I just think that that um, place shapes us uh, in ways that we don't even know. Yeah. Um, so I've noticed that you are currently in the Orlando area. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also mentioned your affinity for Jacksonville mm-hmm. in the northeast of the state of uh, Florida, and. Um, you also mentioned Kentucky a few times, and I just wanted to know, can you expand on the role that each of those places have in your life? Like, 
I just don't know, like, did you grow up in Kentucky or or, or how did Florida come about? Oh, I love that question, Glenn. Yep, yeah, that same. I, I I really appreciate place and I agree that place shapes so much. I was born in Kentucky. My for generations and generations, my family uh comes from Kentucky on both sides. And um I lived there for the first seven years of my life. Right after my seventh birthday, we moved to uh, a mid-sized town in central Florida called Ocala, which is about an hour and a half north um by car from Orlando, where I'm currently based. Um, and so Kentucky was like for the first, I would say 15 years of my life or so, Kentucky still felt like home. I mean, you know, cause that, that period of your life is so short and half over half of it was spent in, in Kentucky. And so, and all my family was still there. We would go back every summer and visit my grandmother who lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, my mother went to, uh, Western Kentucky university, got her master's there. Um, my family is kind of, you know, Kentuckians are, are funny about East and West. It's like it, it, that, that line is really blurry, I think, in my mind. Right. And maybe that's because I'm sort of a Kentuckian who is a Kentucky, you know, I'm an expat. So uh, it's sort of like um, I didn't really grow up there. I really I grew up in central Florida. Right. And so my family, I think, is technically from eastern Kentucky. It feels as I look at the map more like western Kentucky, where most folks kind of were from. Right. But we would go back there every summer. So it was a huge part of my upbringing. Kentucky was. Um, and and I think also a huge um, influence on the music that I grew up with, because my father's from near the Mammoth Cave area, Mammoth Cave National Park. Right. My mother grew up and, and my mother's side of the family is all from like uh Renfro Valley where it's sort of the birthplace of bluegrass. Okay. And, um what's interesting about that and, and it's also interesting I think when we think about the horse country there um bluegrass was always around and country music was always around but I don't come from a particularly musical family. Um nobody in my family really plays an instrument other than me poorly. Um <laughs> Nobody really in my family, they all like music, but they aren't, they aren't enthusiasts. I guess the closest thing would be my uncle who kind of turned me on to like 60s and 70s, Southern Rock, Almond okay. Brothers and Skinnerd specifically, and the Marshall Tucker bands also specifically, and got me into some of those, that kind of music. But, um, you know, they're just folks that like, on my dad's side of the family, my, my, my dad was, um, uh, my dad's father was the local dentist. And so they kind of came from means relative to that area. My mother's mother uh, is the, who's still with us, thankfully, and an incredible woman. And I wrote, I wrote a song about her and how much she's inspired me. Um, she's the the daughter of a sharecropper. Um, and so there, my whole mom's side of the family kind of grew up, you know, farming and uh, relatively poor in pretty tough conditions in Kentucky. Okay. And then my father really had kind of like he was in banking and he developed a reputation of like um, helping struggling banks to just balance their books and get their shit together. Right. And so there was this this bank in in, in central Florida in Ocala, uh, which is kind of a midsize. I refer to it as like a midsize southern town. It's not like a one stop like kind of situation, but it's not Orlando. Right. It's kind of in that tweener. You it's know, north can, of Orlando. It's north of Orlando. It's north, like right, okay. yeah. It's a, it's about an hour and a half north of Orlando, about forty five minutes south of Gainesville, where the University of Florida is. Right, Tom Petty country, right? Exactly, Tom yeah. Petty country. Yep, hundred percent. And so, um, I grew up there, 
and and those town that town had a lot of um influence on on me in that it didn't really encourage the things that that I kind of had um a passion for it did encourage some of the some of the things that I had like uh an acumen for and a passion for for example I love sports and sports are king there um and so I was really encouraged to play to play baseball and to and to play basketball um and to run and that has been a huge part of my life and continues to be a, a huge part of my life um but it wasn't like there was uh you know the 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 guy playing the guitar wasn't getting the girls it was right. the guy it was the quarterback you know what i mean yeah yeah for sure and 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 so i i wanted the girls so i kind of went more in in the direction of athletics and um and and less nurturing of my creative side even though i was a voracious reader and i was crazy into music yeah um but there wasn't anybody nobody was discouraging me necessarily outright nobody was like overtly you know discouraging me from creating things but it wasn't like there was access to that part of me um and i was there for you know i i graduated uh from high school in 1999 and then uh i kind of I went to college and I, and I just sort of traveled around like the right. state, you know, right. I couldn't get, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. I, I went to play baseball down in South Florida. Uh, I, I didn't make, I didn't end up making the team. Like on a, oh, like a, like a college baseball team. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah I, w- I went to play college baseball as a walk on. I tried to walk on and okay. um, they really wanted me to run cross country. They kind of tricked me as <laughs> a Baptist school. And we had all these like rules, you know, you couldn't like, you had to sign in and out of your dorm and you couldn't have, you know, girls in your dorm and you couldn't, uh, you had to have curfew and it was just kind of real strict. And I, I wanted to go to college and go do things, you know? Yeah, yeah sure. I, yeah. Have the college life. What city was that? Sorry. It was in West Palm beach. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It was a small Baptist school down there, private Baptist school. And, um, and so I lasted, a, I only lasted a semester before I moved to Gainesville and, uh, started to, I went to, the community college there and later the university of Florida um, until uh, kind of shit hit the fan for me. I, I was really struggling. I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of direction at the time and wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. And I was, I was drinking fairly heavily. Um, and my really good friend, we were like, I guess we were 19, 20, 21. I, I guess I was about 21. He was about 19 um legally drown um and then came back to life essentially like he was he he was underwater long enough and wasn't breathing for long enough that like technically wow. he drowned and was in a coma for 2 weeks and he made it he made it out thankfully it was a hard road to recovery but we were like you know we were in the hospital every day um with him and it, and it shook me you know and then maybe a month later uh, another good friend about the same age in that same circle of friends died in his sleep. And I just like, I didn't just, know. Just like, just like, uh, uh, like heart condition or, or, or he, he was taking medication that we don't know the details, but like he was making medication out of pharmacy. He had a bad back and oh, okay. whatever the mixture of it wasn't right. And it, and he never woke up. Okay. God. So like, then just like a sweetheart, you know, total stud of a kid, good looking guy, smart, you know, good athlete, just great, great, great guy, 19 years old. Right. Wow. And, um, I, I just didn't have 
the emotional capacity for that. I didn't have the the language for what I was feeling. I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of fell off the deep end, just a lot of drinking and not going to class, um, erratic behaviors. And I failed out of Florida and I was 11 credits short of graduation. And so, you know, I moved home and I was super depressed. And, and, and again, home wasn't right for me. You know, it's right for a lot of people. I was just texting with guys that I'm in a fantasy football league with that are all back there. Right. And, and it's great for them and I'm happy for them, but it it just wasn't for me. And I, I didn't realize that at the time, but once I came back there, you know, feeling very defeated and depressed, I realized like this environment, this place is not the place for me. I need to figure out how to get to a place that's going to nurture the things that, that I care about. I, and about that time I started carrying a notebook a little, like um, I always carry kind of a, you know, a pocket notebook everywhere. Yeah. I go, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I jot ideas. Sometimes it's song ideas. Sometimes it's ideas for the show, whatever. Yeah, for sure. And right about that time I started carrying them. Um, and, you know, I've got a whole bunch more obscured by that picture back there, but there's probably 120 of them sitting back there. For oh, wow. Years. Oh, yeah. so you keep all of them. And oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I'll go back through them. You know, this time of year, I like to thumb through them or whatever and see if there's any ideas. Yeah. Um, And I remember I was I was out with one of my friends who I kind of thought of as like more of a my one of my more progressive and creative friends. And uh, we were just like having a bite to eat and a drink. And I had a thought. So I pulled out my notebook and I started writing in it. And he started making fun of me and, and he was like, and he was like, so what are you going to do if you're on a date and you take that thing out? I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to write down. What do you mean? I don't understand what, I don't get what's happening here. Right. And it was just like in that moment, I realized, you know, in his mind, there are just sort of these, there's this box that you, that you live in and you move from that box to the next box and from that box to another box. And, uh, and that's how that's how you exist and that's how you live. And then when you get to a certain point in life, then you get married and then you have kids. And I just realized like that wasn't me. Is he's doing great. He's a doctor and he's doing he has wonderful kids and a wonderful wife and he's a, a incredible guy. But that just wasn't what just a I different needed. type of just a different type of thinker. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so um and so I got back in school, ended up graduating. Um and then kind of found myself in the same boat. So like my life, my life is sort of the series of uh, early on was this series of sort of like, all right, I go for this goal. And then when I, when I reach that goal, I just sort of struggle for a, a little while. And so the, now, at this point I'm in my mid twenties and I just, again, not knowing what I wanted to do. So I eventually got, again, reined it in and went to law school and this started my love affair with Jacksonville. Um, okay. I, okay. So, so I graduated from the University of North Florida, which is in Jacksonville, and then I went to law school there. And um, when I when I when I got to Jacksonville, I realized like this is the place I need to be. It has a lot of the things that I grew up with, so it's comfortable. You know, it's a it's a it's a city in Florida. Um, it has a lot of that mid sized feel, even though it's the excuse me the largest city in in the United States land area wise. Right. And uh, it has just about anything you need. If you're bored in Jacksonville, it's you. It's not Jacksonville, right? Like there's shows, there's plenty to do. There's the beach, there's the river. Um, And what I found is I just sort of started to develop a community of creatives that I could, that, uh, that were nurturing the side of me that I needed nurtured. And, um, and, and from there, Jacksonville became sort of, even as I eventually left there, Jacksonville became a place that 
that I'd have to, I go back to that well frequently um, because it does, I I feel as though I can be the most authentic version of myself in that town. I can be the creative person that I need to be, but it's also, I I can, I can slip right back into, you know, the comfort zone of that midsize Florida town um, and, and whatever comes along with that. And so you know, that was a huge moment in my life, uh, even though I ended up not working in the law long term and law. And that's a whole nother podcast, probably talking about <laughs> law school and travels in law school and working at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and all that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. OK. Totally different chapter. But but in that time, I sort of found my creative voice. That's when I wrote my first song. Um, That's when I wrote my next song. <laughs> that's when I, you know, that's when I started to put pen to paper about my observations around me. That's when I started to think about music in a different way and think about the written word in a different way. And so I, I owe a, a great debt to that town. Yeah. And I think um, that's the magic of place too, in a way, like, I mean, it, it uh, that's what I mean when it, when it kind of sh- certain places shape us because, you know, certain towns, you just stumble upon them and they, they're just inspiring. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but you know, it just, if, if the, the town just feels right, I've, I've had that experience too. So, yeah. Yeah. Does Jacksonville, does it have, I know it's in the North portion of Florida, but like, does it, does it have more in common with the deep South than the rest of Florida? Or, I mean, I mean, like, or, or, or like as much in common with say a city like, um, you know, Birmingham or, or Atlanta than, you know, maybe then like Tampa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything North of Orlando, is kind of like the that Orlando is kind of the cutoff point. Yeah. Um and Orlando is its own thing in Florida. It's completely different from the other cities, but anything north of Orlando feels mu- has more in common with the deep south. Um I, I don't think it's a it's it's a direct, you know, one to one kind of correlation with uh Jacksonville and say Birmingham for example. Um but very yeah, very similar. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so after, so you didn't graduate law school. I did graduate law school. You did. You did finish law school. I did. I graduated from law school. I worked in the law for a year and a half. I worked as a law clerk for a year and a half. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. In in Jacksonville. No. So, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, again, I, I ended up back in my hometown. Okay. Um, okay. I graduated from law school. I again, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had this like grand vision that I was going to work in international law. And then I got a taste of it and it was incredible. I worked on this unbelievable case at the, at the ICTY, which is a UN tribunal to deal with the, the civil war in the nineties and the former Yugoslavia. And I worked for the association for defense council as an intern uh, while I was in law school and just in- unbelievable, like got to go to, you know, travel through Europe and, and uh, learned a ton about international law, international justice. And it just kind of like ultimately was too homesick and, and didn't want to live in Europe. You know, I mean, I love it there and I want to visit as many times as possible, but I just, I didn't want to live there. And if you're going to do international justice, you kind of got to live in the Hague. Yeah. Um, that, and- that's, that's a huge jump, man. Like from, you know, a 19, 20 year old kid that is drinking too much to, you know, passing the bar exam and going to, going to Europe and, Wow. Yeah. That's, so, that's... all right. So you got most of that, right? I didn't okay. pass the bar. So I graduated from law school and, uh, I, and, and I was an intern during my time in law school. So I, I hadn't graduated when I was in, in Europe. Okay. 
And, uh, but I, I did end up graduating in 2009 and I had a very serious relationship and it was long distance at the time. So my girlfriend at the time uh, was from my hometown, but she was working in fashion in Manhattan. And so we were doing long distance from Jacksonville to New York and then from New York to The Hague and okay. then back to Jacksonville to New York. And when I graduated, we had talked about her like moving back to Florida, but I just felt it didn't re- feel right. It felt again, felt like. I don't know. I, I need to, I need to not necessarily cut ties with my hometown, but the lifestyle that we would have fallen into and that we were headed toward was, I knew the lifestyle I didn't want. And she was incredible. I mean, amazing person. And I'm sure she's doing wonderfully now, but it just wasn't right. It wasn't right for me. You know, I needed to, to figure out what I was going to do next. And still I ended up back in my damn hometown <laughs> and, uh, and, and just depressed, like really struggling. Like now what do I do? I'm in this, this place I don't want to be and I'm not feeling good about myself and I'm going to this job in this cubicle and I'm just doing legal research all day. And every once in a while I get a cool international custody case or something and, um, and, and get excited for a second, but then I'd go right back to just like contracts between construction companies that I'm parsing or whatever. And I just like, I, this, and I saw the system too. I saw like how the system was stacked against people of color and poor people. And I was just like, I gotta, I gotta figure something else out. Um, and so, you know, during that time I I decided I'm going to get into teaching and I had taught for a year prior to law school, kind of in that tweener phase that I mentioned before, where I wasn't sure what the hell was going on. And I taught high school history. And so I got back into teaching. I was teaching language arts, which was really exciting for me because I'm like teaching classic literature and I'm reading all of it to teach it. And I'm interacting with language a little bit more um, in ways that I hadn't prior, you know, and I started a blog at that time. Uh, and this is when, you know, it's 2009. Everybody had a yeah. blog <laughs> writing about their local restaurants or whatever. Well, I had one of those and I called it Florida about, and it was a, what it sounds like it is. It was about Florida. And I just said like, I'm moving, I ended up back in this hometown. I didn't want to be there. I refused to just like let all of these creative, all this creative momentum that I had, I refused to let this go away. I'm going to figure out what what the outlet is for me. And so I started this blog and uh, that led to me writing, you know, about concerts Um, that led to me writing about restaurants and uh, travel. And then I started writing fiction and publishing it on there. And, um, it's not good. If you go back and read it, it's not good, but, but it was like, so the blog's still up. I'm pretty sure it's still up. Yeah. If you search Florida about, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm nervous about that saying that <laughs> publicly, but if you <laughs> search Florida about, you might be able to find it. All right. Um, but it, what it did was it, it, you know, that was my creative outlet that kind of, and, and I was getting good feedback from the 10 people who were reading it or whatever, you right. know? And so I, that, that kind of started to motivate me a little bit more and also made me feel like maybe recognize that, um, one, I needed to, I, I kind of, I did, I did need to get out of my hometown, but I needed not to just get out. I needed to go somewhere. I didn't need to just sort of like get out to get out. I needed to, to paraphrase the Avery brothers. I needed to be like going to something. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when an opportunity opened up in Jacksonville again. Uh, and then there's where the there's where the, mar- the the seeds of the marinade really started to to germinate.
So you're in Orlando now. I just, I wanted to know if you could just give me, as I said, I'm a bit of a geography uh, uh, nerd in some ways. Um, I was just wondering if you could give me like a cultural sales pitch for Orlando, like, you know, try to sell the city to, you know, a bit of a curmudgeon like me who doesn't really want to go to Disney or SeaWorld or chain restaurants, you know, like cool restaurants, museums, record stores, bookstores, music venues. Like I, I was there for an afternoon in 2020. I was down, I was down at spring training in Dunedin. And I think I went to like rock and roll heaven. Uh, have you ever heard of that place? Oh yeah. I had yeah. a really weird experience in there. Uh, okay. I think it's on orange yeah. or whatever. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then I went to Jack Kerouac, went to the Jack wow. Kerouac house uh, in like college park. Um, uh-huh. And, but that's about as much as I know about Orlando. Like, you know, I, I basically what I'm saying here is I just want you to give a northerner like me, you know, shine some light on Orlando. Uh, because, you know, I, I, you know, of course Jacksonville gets some love and Miami obviously gets some love, but, uh, but what's good about Orlando? Yeah. You, you, you came to the right place, Glenn. I, I'm definitely a Orlando evangelist. Um, nice. and, and you hit, you hit a couple of good spots. Um, rock and roll heaven, uh, is a little pricey. But yeah. they have a great selection and they have, and I love their CD selection. Um, tons and tons of CDs and you can find some gems in there. But, um, that area of town, if you'd had more time. So you were kind of in the Lake Ivanhoe area that then bleeds into College Park. Right. And that whole area has a lot of, a lot of cool things. So Orlando, I would say if, if you're going to hit the, the big cultural things, I, I'd, I'm going to start by just debunking some of the myths, right? So most folks from the outside see Orlando as being the theme parks and it's and traffic and it's understandable, right? Like hellacious traffic on our interstates here, mostly because people are going out to the theme parks. Right. Um, I very rarely, I just took a job recently out nor, near Universal Studios, but uh, I very rarely get out that way. Um, it's, it's, my life is pretty contained near the urban core. I ride my bike or walk almost everywhere I go. Um, the, the record store you mentioned is one park Ave CDs is a true gem. Okay. Um, just an incredible institution here that's been around since the nineties. Uh, great, re- great record selection, wonderful, small book selection. Um, they feature local authors and, and local musicians. Uh, I saw Jeff Tweedy do an in-store there a couple years ago. Oh, nice. Uh, true cultural hub of the city. And that's in an area that kind of. Um, has a, has a handful of really cool things there as well for the beer drinkers listening. Um, the craft beer scene here in the last few years, like a lot of cities, of course, but here has, has blossomed and red light, red light is kind of the, um, you know, the old, uh, patron of the, of that scene there and red light, red lights just a few doors down from, um, park Ave CDs. The other thing that I would, and there are a couple other record stores in town and, and there are several really cool venues. So if you're ever in town again, make sure you check out the schedule at Will's pub. Okay. We've recorded probably 30% of the marinades episodes either at Will's or out back at, um, behind it. I've recorded with BJ Barham there and Micah Schnabel and, uh, most recently, Corey Brannon, and I could oh, go nice. on and on and on with the folks that I've gotten to interview there. Austin Lucas plays there about once or twice a year. Matt Woods plays there once or twice a year. Um, American Aquarium has probably outgrown that, that venue now, but for years and years and years, that was where American Aquarium played. Just And it's owned by Will himself. It's called Will's Pub. 
um, great rock club, just a, a small, intimate uh, rock club. And I've heard you guys talk on your show about how maybe you got to be picky about your live music these days and when yeah. you choose to go out and not. And I have to admit, as much as I love Wills, because it's a small rock club, I do limit the number of times that I go for the and make sure that it's somebody I really want to see. But right. that that hub there, which is Wills, Little Indies, and something called Dirty Laundry, all owned by the same guy. That hub uh, is is a spot where there are a lot of really great songwriters that I think you would like. Uh, I'm wearing my Patrick Hagerman shirt right now. Patrick is just as good as it gets. Is he a um, Floridian? He's he's based here. He's from Illinois originally, okay. but okay. he's based in Sanford just down the street. Okay. Um, probably 25 minutes from here. Uh, speaking of Sanford, Jordan Foley lives there. Jordan's a wonderful songwriter um, and a good friend of mine. Uh, Hannah Harbor, Thomas Wynn, incredible songwriters who now live in North Florida, but just sort of really start made their name here. There's a really cool singer songwriter Americana kind of scene in Orlando that, that I, I don't think folks outside of here recognize um, it, for whatever reason, it hasn't gotten out like in the way it should. Uh, I would yeah. put Patrick's songwriting up against just about anybody. I'll Hannah Harbor should out. be a superstar. Yeah. I mean, Hannah Harbor is incredible. Uh, Thomas Wynn and, and the believers did kind of make it out a little bit, but not on the level that I think they should great Southern rock music. Um, and so there's that, that cultural scene. And then the other thing that Orlando outside of the city probably isn't known for as much as it should be. And something that we're really proud of is just, it's a really LGBTQ friendly city, especially nice. compared to its surroundings, right? It's a very yeah. welcoming city. Pretty much any city I've ever been in, in the U S whether it's, got a conservative reputation or not as progressive pockets and some wonderful, wonderful people. So, yeah. And, and on the national scene, unfortunately we've rightfully been getting a lot of shit. Cause we, I mean, our governor is a comic book villain, you yeah, know, like, yeah. I mean, he's, he's as bad as it gets and that's true, but we're a purple state. I mean, it's just, the reality is it's not like you just go everywhere and you see, um, you know, bigots with shotguns shooting gay people. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's yeah. the perception that we, that people have outside of the state. And some of it's well-earned when you have a, the mouthpiece of the state being such an open bigot and being such a terrible individual. Um, those are our leaders. We elected those people. So I think the other thing about this place that's so incredible is the that it's physically stunning and it doesn't look like many other places that you'll that you'll find in the United States or in North America for that matter. I mean, we went uh, my partner and I went kayaking yesterday and we went through the city of Winter Park, which is 15 minutes from us or so. And um there's these canal these lakes and these canals that connect the lakes. Um and like those those kinds of opportunities for um you know hiking through marshland or um kayaking or uh biking are just it's you know it's flat here yeah. unless it's unless it's august you can bike i mean you can do it in august too if you grew up here it's not that big of a deal but um but it's just stunning. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. We live near downtown Orlando and I can walk to Lake Underhill where I can see hawks and ospreys and otters playing and an alligator. And 
you know, and then this major highway runs right through it. <laughs> it's yeah. just sort of like this, <laughs> it's just a stunning place. And, um, and so we're really fortunate just for the natural beauty of Florida as well on top of all that. So, I mean, there, there's, there, there's culture that I think a lot of folks don't recognize in Orlando. We have a world-class concert hall, the Dr. Phillips center, Jason Isbell's coming in January. Um, Lyle yeah, Lover played there recently. Oh, you better believe it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like all kinds of great acts come through there and it's incredible. I usually wear earplugs, you know, cause I'm an old man and I, I can't right. handle all the sound and I can't hear for shit anymore for all the years of not wearing earplugs. <laughs> but, um, but when, when I go to a show there, I don't need them, Glenn. I don't yeah. need my earplugs cause the sound is so dialed in. It's nice. that good, you know? Yeah. And so most everybody comes through here. Sometimes people skip Orlando. Sometimes. Some actually skip Florida altogether and I, I don't blame them, but if, if they're coming to Florida, they usually play Orlando. So, um, we, and we have venues for every size, right? So you, you can go see Austin Lucas play a solo acoustic gig at, at Will's pub, or you can go see murder by death play the social, you know, right. or John Moreland play the social, which is a little bit bigger, or you can see an act like Isbel in the 400 unit at the Dr. Phillips center. And these are all wonderful venues to see a show. Yeah. Um, and so there's something going on all the time uh, in that way. And I think this, you know, we t- I talked about how Jacksonville really nurtured me creatively. Th- there's no marinade. If I don't move to Orlando, there's right. just, there's not, I mean, it, Jacksonville was awesome. It really was. But, you know, I met my partner in life when, when her band was playing in Jacksonville and, we fell in love and we did long distance for a couple of uh, years and then f- she wasn't going to move there. So I ended up here. Okay. And, uh, and when I did, you know, she's a visual artist and a singer. So, you know, she sculpts and, and does woodworking and paints and, uh, and can s- sing beautifully. And so she was already plugged into an artistic community right, here, right, right. a nurturing community here. And, so this town does love its artists and, and supports its artists and its creatives. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something that maybe outside of here, it's not that we're protective of that. It's just that I think a lot of times outside of here, people are blinded by the Florida man tropes and are understandably blinded by the mouse because it is a looming presence. But yeah, yeah. You know, ultimately my experience is not like that. My that's really, yeah, that's really good that to way. hear. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I know a lot of people who think it's a bit of a cultural wasteland and I knew that wasn't true. So I mean, I, I, Tampa doesn't get enough credit. There's some great venues and, and great bands from Tampa as well. I mean, have gun will travel is not technically from Tampa, but um, they're from just South of there. And uh, the, and then Ebor city gets name dropped in just about all of my favorite band songs. I mean, the hold steady constantly talking about Ybor city and Isbel. That's one of my favorite Isbel lines for sure. Yeah. Incredible. Um, Yeah. I know you touched on this a little bit. What did music look like in your house growing up when you were a young kid through adolescence, through, through your teenage years? Like, can you just give me a a description of, of records in the house or instruments kicking around? I know you said there weren't many instruments, but. Yeah, there were no instruments. Um, I always wanted to play guitar and my parents encouraged me to play guitar, but didn't have the, they didn't know how to go about it. Um, you know, my, my dad, like I said, was a banker. And so he encouraged me to like save my allowance and, you know, get a guitar, which I did. But, yeah. um, but from there, it was just kind of, 
being self-taught for a long time until I met other people that played and they taught me some other things, but music for us, it was, it was, it was around quite a bit. Um, when I was really young, I, I don't, I don't really know where, I don't know where the music was coming from. We, when I was really young, we were in a tiny little town in, in Kentucky, um, right along the Tennessee border. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like the Dukes of Hazards, you know, but, re- but in real life, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, my dad was the banker and his drinking buddies were the judge and the, the sheriff. And, right. um, <laughs> they got into all kinds of hijinks and <laughs> things that are very illegal and, yeah. you know, and, and like that, that's, you know, and, People came threatening my dad because he repoed their car with, with their mm. guns and stuff. Like a lot of the stereotypes that we think of in sort of, you know, rural Kentucky, I think is, was what I remember of that time. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't like there was music and culture around me. It wasn't like everybody was listening to a lot of stuff. I remember being into the Beach Boys for some reason as a, as a small kid. Okay. And then at, when we moved to Florida, a few years after we moved to Florida, uh, that, town that I grew up in Ocala, I got a country station. And so this would have been the late eighties. So late eighties, early nineties, country music was on heavy rotation. Nice, um, yeah. You know, I was listening to a lot of Garth Brooks and George Strait, um, Kenny Chesney a little bit later. Um, country radio is what I listened to almost exclusively. My I can dad, relate to that. Yeah. 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 I feel like a lot of us can, you yeah. know, I, I think, I think you know, BJ Barham talks about that. Um, he talks about like how, he didn't necessarily grow up on, it wasn't like he was listening to sort of classic country. I was listening to Shania Twain. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot. Well, I love those and, cover albums. He does those two, those two uh, country yeah. cover. Like I, 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 I blast them quite often the, the way he covers those old nineties tunes. I love it. Yeah. He does a good, yeah, he does a great job and his band does a great job and you can tell they're having fun with it. Yeah. That, that was really the soundtrack of sort of middle school for me for a, uh, to a large extent, um, except that I was sort of quietly listening to grunge. Um, I don't know why there was something about like my identity coming from Kentucky and being in central Florida at that age as an adolescent where I'm hyper aware of, of my image that I didn't want people to know. I listened to Nirvana and Soundgarden, Um, but I did uh, a lot, you know, and it was always on that stuff was on MTV and I ate it up and I loved it. Um, and I loved watching music videos. So that period of time publicly, I was really into country radio and and my dad was blasting country radio all the time, but I also was really listening to a ton of, ton of that grunge kind of stuff that was so popular and alternative music. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots is probably my favorite band that wasn't country. Same. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Big, big empty, just like to this day, when I hear it, I feel something. You yeah, know. I have an old, I have an older brother. He's uh, about seven years older than me, and and he had albums by the Chains and and STP and Soundgarden and Nirvana and and Mudhoney and stuff. But yeah, I gravitated yeah. definitely gravitated toward STP for some reason. I don't know why. I don't either. Wyland had a bit of a, an electric personality, and I, I I think that might have been something to do with it. But <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think he for you know for. 12 year old me or whatever. Um, there was just, there was something about him. He was so sexual, I think. And also like, I was kind of like, I, I sort of recognized my own sexuality kind of earlier than I think most of my friends. I was just right. hornier than most of my yeah. friends, I think. And, 
And so I, there was something very sexual about him. And yeah. I think that music also was kind of sexual and aggressive in some ways that spoke to me. And I was very, um, I wasn't openly angsty. I wasn't like, um, cause my life was pretty good, but I was really wrestling early on with questions of existence, like very early on freaking out about death and, um, and, and salvation and all this kind of stuff growing up in the Baptist church in the South. And so. There was something about that music that allowed me to sort of channel my anger into something more positive than just sort of getting in fights in the neighborhood yeah. um, or and mostly getting my ass kicked because I was a lot smaller than everybody else. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that music really spoke to me. And then in, in high school, hip hop. Um, so I still listen to a lot of country radio, but I first heard Nas Illmatic and that just changed everything for me. Oh, um, cool. He, he, he was, he was talking about things I didn't understand. You know, he was speaking about Islam and he was talking about his neighborhood and it just so fucking foreign to me. And then, um, and then I remember us skipping school to pick up, uh, Wu-Tang Forever from the local CD store, you know, a couple blocks away. And that record just in high school totally took over for us. Master P a little bit later, uh, was huge for us. Okay. Um, and so hip hop and and country were kind of these these dueling forces that were a huge part of my life. And at that point, now I'm driving, right? And I saved up my money for like, um, you know, I had the the sound system that every '90s kid dreamed of with the two tens behind the bench seat. I had an F one fifty, nice. And I had like the, you know, I had the I don't even I'm not I don't speak speaker very well, but <laughs> I had like really really nice speakers and an Alpine CD player, you know, with the detachable face. Yeah. Um, and I spent any money I could get my hands on on CDs. I was okay. just buying buying records as as much as I possibly could. Of if I if something looked like it it made sense to me, I was buying it. And then everything's going, you know. Then it's like now I'm really branching out because at that time there were so many cool um country like tribute records of uh, of other types of music that were that were roots records i now recognize but like common thread the songs of the eagles do you remember that record yeah 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 and then there was a record called skinnerd and friends okay um and that had a bunch of country uh art 90s country artists doing uh doing skinnerd songs oh wow and, okay um and then i heard uh waylon jennings so my, my dad did listen to quite a bit of waylon and willie and merle haggard and johnny cash so i grew up on quite a bit of that and my grandmother had all those all those vinyls and so when we go visit her i'd just play them one after the other after the other and listen to that stuff growing up so that was a kind of you know a part of my life as well and i first heard him do marshall tucker bands can't you see Wayland okay. Wayland did a cover of the Marshall Tucker brands. Can't you see? Okay. It's very, very different. Um, I, I, I think that's about, I think he was pretty doing some, he was on speed at the time. Um, <laughs> if you listen to some of those, those records when he's, uh, when he's on drugs, they're, they're fast, man. Okay. And, uh, and that, that then got me into Marshall Tucker band, which then opened up Southern rock in a different way for me and yeah. led into all kinds of different directions. And so, you know, throughout high school, it was mostly um, hip hop and country music with a little bit of that other stuff sprinkled in. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's 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 a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot different than just you know listening to top forty radio or something. That's a lot of different influences. I can definitely relate to yeah, like driving to baseball games, listening to nineties country radio, the grunge thing, and then the classic country stuff yeah my my dad was a uh absolute 
um, savant when it came to the classic country. So oh, that's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, um, he knew his stuff, uh, when it came to that. Um, were there any books that you read, like when you were, you know, 15, 16, 17, that really had an impact on you? Yeah. The dystopian stuff really, um, hit me hard at that time. And I've tried to unpack that for a while. Like Fahrenheit 451 is a book that completely changed my my worldview and i i it's my it's influence on my life has has shifted over the years as i have changed so you got to remember i grew up like in a in a conservative town in um in a in the baptist church um and fox news wasn't on necessarily at that time but not far after you know right. this time period i'm talking about Fox News was on at, at every restaurant at my at my house all the time. Um, I, I grew up like a, in a conservative environment in all of those stereotypical ways, um, and so I I was projecting that worldview onto whatever I was consuming too. Right. So right. when I read Fahrenheit Fahrenheit four fifty one by Ray Bradbury. I'm reading about this world where books are being banned and like, you know, this there's the, the, the government is so overpowerful and it's feeding into the narratives that I'm hearing from the adults around me about government overreach and the dangers of government. And so it's reinforcing like what I'm projecting onto that book that I now see as quite opposite of that. Right. Yeah. Um, But I'm projecting at the time sort of it's reinforcing what the adults around me are telling me. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And because I'm not getting exposed to many other ideas at that time, I'm really buying into it. And I'm also really, I've been reflecting on this lately. I really trusted the adults in my life. And so it's a, it's a disillusioning feeling as I'm, as I'm traveling through my forties, I really thought they had their shit figured out. And I really thought they were right about so many things. And I'm learning now they were wrong about so many things. Yeah. That's a really interesting <laughs> thing to look back on. But that, that book really hit me. Um, I, I was reading at that time, le- maybe less in the way of um, literature. I was reading a lot of biographies. So I was obsessed with baseball and I read I read Hank Aaron and Bo Jackson, Bo knows Bo and um, Dave Dravecki and Oral Hershiser. And uh, I mean, Mickey Mantle's uh, biography and autobiography books on Ted Williams, Ted Williams book on hitting anything I could consume about sports and specifically baseball. Yeah. All that stuff really sparked my interest in reading. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that my father got, my, my mother started me reading at a very young age. Um, and so my mom's an educator, uh, was an educator. She's retired, but um, she, you know, she's, she got me reading bef- well before I started school. And then um, my father from a very early age was nurturing that. So he was getting sports illustrated for kids in my hands and the sports section of the paper. And then later, Sports Illustrated itself and Sport Magazine and the Sporting News and Beckett Baseball Club Monthly or, or Beckett Baseball Card Monthly. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I had that, I had a subscription to that. Uh, so, so much of what I was reading, I was consuming about, um, about sports. And then a little bit later, probably right as I started to finish high school and get to college is when I started picking up, um, Rolling Stone. And Maxim had a magazine called Blender in the early 2000s. I don't know if it's still around, but 
um, some of those uh, music magazines too. Um, right. And and then in in college, I dove into classic literature um, pretty heavy. You talked a little bit about the impetus for the marinade. Like, I was just wondering, in terms of interviewing, like, do you do you have any um, favorite interviewers or, or anybody that you've listened to? Like, for for me, you know, I, I mean, Terry Gross is is probably on people's Mount Rushmore. But like, do you take? I know you take the interviewing process seriously because you're really really good at it. But like, do, do you base your style on anybody or? Or, or anything like that. Um, I really like that question. I, I I don't think I base my style on anybody, but I can't help but but allow for a lot of my influences to seep in. So, um, I I, I grew up really enjoying David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. Yeah, and I I never thought that was something I could do. That d- didn't seem it seemed like those guys did that, and then Jay Leno did a poor version of that, and. <laughs> And that was it, right? It didn't seem like, you know what I mean? It didn't seem like that was something anybody did. It was those guys did that really well and they were funny and they did a great job. But I never really thought that was something that anybody else could do or that I could do. Um, And so when I got into podcasting many, many years later, I now recognize that some of that had to seep in, you know, and I still listen to Conan's podcast quite a bit. And some of some of that does seep in just in the way I approach the work. Yeah. Um, I'm not a comedian, but, uh, but the way they approach the interview process, I'm, I'm clearly influenced by it, but the, the interviewer or the podcaster that really set it all off for me was the first one I ever listened to. And that was Pete Holmes. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. His, his show, you made it weird. My buddy, Peter, uh, Peter Haroldson, who was instrumental in the marinade, becoming a thing and still is a huge supporter of all the things that we do was one of the early thought partners on the show. And I I honestly wasn't into podcasting at first. Like this is 2012. Peter and I are working together and he's trying to get me into podcasts. And I'm like, dude, I listen to so much music. Like I don't have time for this, you know, radio show on the internet stuff. I I'm good. Like I've got too many records to listen to. I don't have time for it. And he's like, well, you're going to learn about more records by listening to podcasts. You're going to learn about the things that I know you're excited about by listening to podcasts. And Pete did such a good job of coming in ready, but also just letting the guests go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I found that really inspiring because I like so many interviews are, they, they have to hit certain point talking points in there and they have to fit into a certain box. And like, I can do that. And I can do it well. Like I come in ready. So yeah. if you, you want to hit all the boxes, we can hit all the boxes. Um, but I just didn't find that as compelling as I did when Pete's asking people what the meaning of life is, you know? And I was like, all right, this is something I can get sink my teeth into. And yeah. his show was exactly almost exactly two hours. And my partner, Chris and I were long distance at the time. And it's two hour drive from Jacksonville to Orlando. So I was leaving on Friday to come see her two hours of Pete Holmes, spend the weekend with her. I'd go back home early in the morning on Monday, get up at four in the morning to drive back to work on Monday, two hours of Pete Holmes, getting me safely back to Jacksonville. And eventually I was like, you know what? He's good, but he's also leaving some stuff on the table that I would, that I would probably want to ask people. Right. Like, he's doing a great thing in the way that he does it, but 
if I had my own show and I could ask my songwriting heroes and creative heroes questions, I would want to go in the direction that he didn't go on that. And so I thought, why not? And, um, you know, at that time I had started writing for a local publication, um, and, uh, here in Orlando, you know, so this is fast forward two years. I start writing for a publication and I'm, I'm interviewing artists and I'm covering shows. I'm doing reviews and I'm doing previews of shows, just going to like a show almost every week at this point, you know, in my life. And, um, when the first time I interviewed an artist, it was an artist named, um, Brett Bass. He's an incredible flat picking guitar player from the Jacksonville area. And, uh, he's one of those, he kind of, um, you know, if you have to have to put him in like a big bucket, it'd be the Hank Williams, the third bucket. Okay. Kind of that, uh, you know, just a blazing guitar player, um, murder ballads, uh, punk influences, incredible performer also. And cow, cow punk or some, yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so some like genre blue, like that. Yeah. Bluegrass cow punk. If that's a thing, I don't yeah, know, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I kind of I started talking to Brett and I, I had my phone recording like this is all really before I knew what the hell I was doing. So I just had like my Android phone with a voice recorder and you can hear the point where I realize I'm boring the shit out of him <laughs> and I need to turn. I need to change. Yeah. And that moment, you know, I went, wait a minute. You you talked all this time about how you wanted to do what Pete does, except you don't want to leave some of those questions on the table and you're leaving all these fucking questions on the yeah, table. Yeah. Man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And, uh, so from that point forward, you know, I realized, okay, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about process and I want to talk about their, you know, their hopes and fears and dreams in life. I don't like some of the shit that I was asking him was like about the industry and all this stuff that he didn't want to talk about. Um, and so from that point forward, I went, all right, we've got something here and something's lost in just writing this down. You can hear where he decides and where I decide, oh no, I'm going to lose this guy if I don't change what I'm, what I'm saying. And it's a really compelling listen. The audio is long gone now, but to me, I found that really compelling because you could, it was, wasn't just the artist that I'm interviewing. It was what you referred to earlier. It was me kind of going through some shit on my own and wrecking, growing as a creative on this end of the, of the microphone and recognizing, wait a minute, I got to make an adjustment right now. And that wasn't going to come through on a written piece that I was going to write. That was only going to come through in this podcasting format. And there's where the marinade was really born. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I did, I'm just fascinated by the interview process. And of course you've done a ton and I've done very, very few, but, um, it's always interested me. And like, it's much different when you get on the mic, you know, you, yeah. you have all these big ideas in your, uh, you know, at your kitchen table when you're drinking coffee and you think, man, mm-hmm. I could do that really well, but then you clam up a little bit and you don't hit that lucid sort of sweet spot during the interview that you want to sometimes and or they don't give you they don't give you the energy you expected or what you want right yeah Yeah. exactly yeah but i'm still fascinated by it and i I listen to a ton of interview podcasts i feel like i've gleaned quite a bit from different styles and interviewing's an art in its own right i mean like you know a good a good conversation can be just as um rewarding as a good song can be sometimes you know but I've never really thought about it in the same way as being like, it's not 
it's not quite as cool as being a songwriter, maybe. Like, I wanted to be Towns Van Zandt, not, you know, Larry fucking King or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, like, but still, what, I don't know. It's just, it's an art form in itself. I, I totally agree. And, you know, some of the people that are doing it now that are really, really good at it, I, I would say, in my mind, the person who does as close to what I do as I can, as I've experienced, except he has a different bent to what he does is Brian Koppelman's the moment. Yeah. Um, I've listened to him quite a bit. Yeah. I think Brian is the gold standard of the long form interview. Um, Mm -hmm. Terry Gross is a legend. As you mentioned, Um, there are plenty of people who do it really, really well. I really like Joe Pug's podcast. Yeah. Um, You know, I really like what Chris Shiflett does uh, when it comes to that songwriting kind of podcast. Uh, But uh, you you talked about Otis Gibbs recently um, yeah. and getting to see him. Uh, yeah, he was kind of an OG in that respect. I mean, with yeah. Thanks for Giving a Damn, right? That show was so good. Yeah, um, man, yeah. Yeah, and, but I but that was less interview more and more sort of like just him doing his Otis thing, I guess. You yeah. Know? I but that Brian Koppelman to me is is the standard, you know? Yeah. And, um, and part of it is that he gets whoever the fuck he wants. He's Brian Koppelman. He wrote Rounders. You know, he, he, he can get just about anybody. And that's, that's key too, is that, you know, I mentioned earlier, sometimes the guest just isn't giving you what you expected or what you were hoping for. And you have to be willing to go in those directions. Um, but you got to be interested in who you're talking to, you yeah. know, and, and if, if you're not interested in the person you're talking to, it's not going to be good. And I've been fortunate to only book people I was interested in. So, um, you know, I, I think that comes through in the work, but you got to be fired up about it. I just... I'm not going to do an interview if I'm not excited about it. I, I know you've mentioned that you are a bit of a songwriter as well. Like, like how often do you sit down with the guitar to try and put together a song? When I'm, it's sort of like anything else, right? When I'm exercising all the time, I'm exercising all the time. Um, when I'm writing, I'm writing all the time. Uh, yeah. When I'm not, I'm not. I'm like, I haven't written a full song in since probably March or April. Um, but I've got pieces. I just today was cleaning my studio and I've just got post-it notes and pieces of songs everywhere that I need to sit down with. Um, but when I am writing, I mean, I, I don't have, I don't have writer's block. So when I just don't experience it, when I sit down to write, I can write. Um, and I try to write something every day, whether it's a song or a short story or, uh, show review or whatever. So when it's with the song thing, melody is sometimes hard for me to, to figure out how to make it sound right. I don't just, I don't just pick up the guitar and the melody that's in my head goes to the guitar. That's not how my brain works. So many songwriters I talk to are like, well, I, you know, just you play the melody. Like right. that's not really how it works for me. The words I can easily put on the page, yeah. not easily, but I can put them on the page. Um, figuring out how to make that sound like it does in my head is not very easy for me. Um, that takes a lot of work. And so when, but when I'm doing that work, I crave it. Um, and so I, I do it constantly when I'm not doing that work. I can, my guitar is dusty right now. You know, it's been sitting, I picked it up uh, last weekend and noodled around a little bit and had an idea kind of coming. And then I was just watching, you know, football or whatever, and it went away. Um, but I, when I am sitting down to do the work, it's, it's almost every day I'm sitting down to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I really admire. I don't know. I hear a lot of songwriters say like that. They 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 write every day, Um, yeah. you know, regardless, like, you know, Jeff, I've heard Jeff Tweedy say that I've heard 
is both say that uh, Gord Downey, another one of my favorite songwriters, like, you know, y- you do something every day. And, and I- I've just always admired that from afar, like dedication to a craft. I mean, I, I'm a little bit scatterbrained that way. Like I, I get obsessed with things for, you know, a few months and then I move on to something else and I move on to something else. And people that can like, I don't know, I guess I'm restless or something because I just yeah. I, I just think like people that can sit down and like every day and and because I know that's I know that time is the ultimate you know indicator of success and and I know if you just do it, it you know yeah but it doesn't work for everybody I don't think Glenn and I think the educator in me is coming out right now and saying like your brain may not be suited for that you know right. your brain may be more it isn't necessarily mine is like I I, I need to compartmentalize things and I need to be like, this is my songwriting time and this, or this is my, um, my podcasting time. Like I need that. Um, but not everybody a needs it or B can, can do it. Cause that's not how your brain is, you know, yeah. Yeah. that's not how it fires. And, and for me, I can't do the sort of all over the place thing. Um, it, my brain will do that sometimes, but I won't like, it just doesn't, it's, I, I'm not going to get anything, meaningful done in that way i have to sit down and do the work usually um sometimes i'm lucky and it just hits me but for the most part i have to sit down and do it but with songwriting it's like third or fourth on my creative list of things that i want to to do my priorities like i love songwriting but it's a, just a, a hobby that i enjoy and i get up at open mic a couple times a year you know okay um cool. i like sh- fiction has been something i'm really wanting to to get into and uh, short stories. I I wrote a novel that I haven't edited. Um, that kind of work is sort of right behind podcasting is number two. And then songwriting is probably around three, maybe even four, because I like to write show reviews and that helps me to get to go see amazing shows and interview more people and that kind of thing. So, right, right. you know, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you listening to the show. I really appreciate your shout out uh, on the show of the marinade. I really appreciate your thoughtful interview and for, for being interested to talk to me. Uh, I'm really glad we connected. Thanks once again to Jason. Make sure to check out his work at marinadepodcast.com. I also want to thank Andrew for providing the musical interludes during that interview. And I never thought I'd say this, but the Raced by Whoops fake radio show now has merchandise. Head over to RaisedByWhoops.com, click on the Capitalism tab, and have a look around. Here's Wooden Wands Winter in Kentucky to play us out. Thanks again for all the support. Church, give me 50 bucks to shovel out the parking lot. No use thinking out loud, you're the only one that is. But I can listen to Jimmy Dale and watch my breath blow out like foggy flames. I ain't got a call, no, but it's soon. Beth, I wish you'd move back here You've missed a lot of crazy shit Like last month, Doc went crazy or something Took off in this cruiser going about 110 
was throwing black prescription pads out the window And I followed him for miles and miles and miles To break lights Like a devil's eyes Staring straight into me Thanks for tuning in to the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. This is Glenn. Both Andrew and I are grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed that episode, we'd appreciate if you could tell your friends, family, or even a few strangers about the show. Additionally, you can leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have a story to share or a guest to recommend, you can reach out to us via the website, which is raisedbywhoops.com. We're glad to have you with us. Thanks, and take care. Beth, when we met, you looked like the kind of girl that gets sworn in the drag race. Guess all them bloody merry brunches built the edges on you. You got a stay of execution, some deferment from oblivion. Things that didn't kill you Made you weak over time It's winter in Kentucky I'm all tapped out Pastor got some parishioners To shovel out the lot for free But sometimes you just gotta stop and consider the good things Like how your money don't get ruined When it gets washed In the pockets of your jeans